This is episode 4-6 of Free as in Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And uh, this is we did this before. We did. It's uh, deja vu all over again. But it's not um, but it's not deja écoute. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how the, what the conjugation would be in French. Uh, because it's it hasn't already been heard. But you took French. I did, but I don't know the, the I'm not very well. I'm not I don't speak very well. Okay. I, I, I speak very little. But um, because I took French in high school and uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, but I do remember some things, but just not how to properly conjugate everything for everything. And a lot of other things I don't know either. That was a really long-winded way to say, I don't speak French. So we recorded, <laughs> we, we, we haven't gotten the feedback yet from everyone if they wanted to hear this, but we at one point recorded all these uh, introductions and uh, comments on the FOSM 2013. So this is February 2013. This is more than a year and a half ago now. Uh, talks uh, that that were, were recorded at that conference. We did most of the first day. We did part of the second day, and we never finished. And these recordings aren't anywhere. They're, they're not available anywhere. They're exclu- other than ex- free- exclusive content. To free is in freedom. <laughs> and I I felt given that we did the effort to record them, even though they're old, um, I don't think any of them are completely out of date or anything like that. And I, for historical archival purposes, given that we're the only ones in possession of those recordings, I felt like, felt a certain responsibility to put them out. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think we also uh, we we promised them, and then on top of it, um, I've been asked by at least two people for them. So, oh, for talks and since we, we only have three we listeners, that's two thirds of our yeah. listeners. Well, for, for from listeners or from people who listeners, spoke? yeah, listeners. Somebody who spoke actually asked for where his was. And I told him it would eventually be out, but that's when I thought it would actually would be out last year. So eventually it'll be out. You know, somebody told me that we should have uh, T-shirts that say I'm one of the three. Yeah, yeah. Somebody <laughs> else told me that too. Maybe oh, the really? same person. Yeah. And that we should do like limited edition T-shirts. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. If we're not going to hold do the whole Planet Money thing where we go and see the T-shirts being made, I, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't even know what that is. Planet Money made a T-shirt. And they followed it from the cotton being grown to oh, really? coming back to the U.S. Yeah, oh, all the way around. Okay. Actually, I learned from it that Colombian textile workers are actually tra- treated pretty well. So I'm not going to um, boycott Colombian T-shirts anymore. Although okay. they've gotten so, tra- workers are treated so well there that they're losing contracts for textiles in Colombia. Oh, really? Yeah, it, that was the whole story. It was basically that the worst environments are always go through a textile phase in modern global economies. And Bangladesh is still pretty bad now as far as the workers are treated. But they're treated better than they were when they were having trouble on farmlands. So mm. it's it's relative, but it didn't seem right to me. Whereas the Colombians, they seen the woman had an apartment of her own and all the normal middle class stuff you'd expect. Mm. So, whereas in Bangladesh, they were living like three in the apartment together, and I have to say, like a little I, hadn't, tiny I hadn't thought tenement. that deeply, which you know, I well, should have. I should have. I mean, people think of me as jingoistic because I only I try to only buy U.S. made textiles, but it's like, but 
At the, least I know the workers' laws, the laws that, that apply to them. It's tough with that because then you, you might wind up with stuff made in Saipan. Yeah, I know about that. But that's actually, the, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Oh, they're not allowed to label it as made in the USA? Yeah, I think so. Huh. I think they I'm fixed, surprised. I think they fixed that. I remember there was a lot of attention to it a few years US ago. U.S. territories, but yeah. But I haven't, yeah. uh, haven't paid attention to that. Well, there's a, um, I, for sweatpants and sweatshirts, there's a... Uh, a site called Union Made, which is where all the unions buy all their stuff for their clothes, because obviously unions in the U.S. don't want to buy stuff made with non-union labor. So it's actually right. U.S. union labor. Oh, really? Made, yeah. And have you bought, bought anything? Um, the from sweatpants us? I'm wearing as we record this. Oh, I record okay. the show in sweatpants. I'm not <laughs> These are these are made in the U.S.A. by union workers. Oh. Unionized workers. Union song. You yeah. need battle. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, so we're we're not going to talk about the about that. We didn't have this on the previous recording. We didn't. No, we definitely didn't have this. So, so we're going to go into the rest of the Fosdem 2013 talks, the ones that we. Missed. Unless we hear from people that they really don't want them. Well, and we'll, we'll try. We'll try to use them as. Uh, I don't want to say filler, but it's kind of filler. We'll use them on weeks where we have trouble recording, and then that way there's at least that way content. we don't have to go on hiatus. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so now we, this was our plan back in September when we made all the recordings. And so we actually did. We we like recorded five of these one day. We took a long time, and then we had a problem with the recording. So we yeah, lost we them. I explained that in, in OX OX four four. I think I explained that in. Okay. So that was explained in a previous episode. Previously on, <laughs> we could play little pieces of of. I feel like we should like allow this segment to end and have a new segment introducing the talk. Oh really? Yeah. Because okay. this is great music. Here you go. Bradley, why don't you set up this talk? Uh, so uh, this is we, we we did most of them, like I said in the previous segment. Uh, this one is from what time of the day was it? Uh, <laughs> this was the 11 a.m. Sunday talk on Sunday, February 3rd, 2013. Long, long ago, and <laughs> this this was the. It was called legally cementing licenses in legislation, and it was Maureen O'Sullivan. Yeah, and she worked with a grad student uh, whose name uh, is very is very Celtic, and I can't pronounce it. Uh, named student named Ian, can you pronounce that? I can try, but I'll probably butcher it. Yeah, so we'll put that in the show notes uh, rather than more crabby. Okay, and and that was her student uh, who did some research work at the university she's at, uh, and I had some. Uh, you'll you'll hear me during this talk. Uh, I had some issues with yeah, this talk. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, so uh, yeah. so you'll hear you'll hear my voice you ask a few questions, Bradley, and you might hear me. I actually, I think I spoke up and told me <laughs> shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you'll hear that. Enjoy that part. Uh, that's about 25 minutes in or so of the talk. Yeah. So uh, so enjoy that, and uh, we'll come back and, and debate the issues uh, of, of that day uh, when we return. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm kind of doing a joint presentation on behalf of a colleague and myself, Ian, and I just actually realized that even though I've known him for about four years, I didn't know how to pronounce his surname the other day, so I so it's Omeil Kriva, it's uh, an Irish surname anyway. So um, basically, uh, my background is I'm not a, a practitioner, so I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of different terms of licenses or anything like that. I'm an academic, and so I did my master's at the University of Warwick in this, in um, licensing uh, free software from a socio-legal perspective in 2001, and I've sort of been writing on it on and off for the last few years. 
So what I'm going to sort of do is bring a bit more of a macro perspective to the debate that's been ongoing. And I'd also seek to address some of the questions and issues that were raised yesterday. So the first thing is that um, there's a question which, you know, I, I think that we have to start asking at this point, whether floss is a cuckoo in the copyright nest, as computers were once described. And I'll get into why this is actually the case, because I mean, anyone who's sort of studied the history of copyright no law knows that it's been stretched beyond any sort of reasonable bounds. It wasn't even first introduced as a protection of property rights or intellectual property rights. It was a restriction on the freedom of speech introduced shortly after the uh, invention of the printing press um, by the Tudor monarchs because, you know, it happened at the time of the Reformation and um, they didn't want the, or they wanted to restrict the spread of seditious material. So computer programs have been described as a cuckoo in the copyright nest. I mean, I think that anybody who's, who's done any reading on this uh, will appreciate that it was a very, it was very much a mismatch, but it was kind of convenient because you had international legislation in place. And so after the Cantu report in the US, it was decided to extend copyright protection to computer software. And the important thing then that I would say about that is the software came first, the law didn't. What's been interesting for me, um, because in Ireland, like uh, lawyers, they often, like they finish school at 17 and they come into class very, very fresh-faced in university. So I often throw out a question, what comes first, the people or the law? And in one class, I once had the experience of about 60% of the people putting up their hands and saying the law comes first. <laughs> so whether that's a religious thing, I don't know. But when you tried to get into it, there was, there was no shifting this experience. And what I, I guess I want to get at here is I think that um, Gabe's talk was very interesting yesterday because one of the things he said is that we keep on talking about the same issues at these conferences. And I'm not suggesting that Ian and I have come up with anything spectacular or anything like that, but I think that when there is a problem within the law, there are practicalities that you have to deal with what you've got. I mean, free software or floss is protected by copyright. There are issues of licensing, but that doesn't mean that you can't start thinking about a different legal paradigm to start running in parallel and ultimately perhaps replace it. So this compatibility issue, I had brought all my electrics from Ireland and I hadn't been on continental Europe for about two years because I'm doing my PhD in Edinburgh so I'm sort of switching between the two. So I went to plug in my laptop and my mobile phone and next thing I'm fixed with this problem. <laughs> the reality that the clubs are all different. Potential resolution, so you get a whole host of different adapters for a whole host of different plugs. And I think that's kind of a, it's a hardware metaphor for some of the problems that are uh, faced by FLOSS. So just to give a brief history then, you've got problems with BSD licensing, the tragedy of the virtual commons, you don't have sacred cows, you don't have a ruination of pasture, but you've got problems of obsolescence. If you're able to take something from the free commons and make it proprietary, suddenly you've got a proprietary standard and perhaps the free software uh, progenitors can't keep up or they're not able to or it creates a huge investment. So I think one of the things, that, I mean the main thing that the GNU GPL from my reading as a kind of an outsider and as an academic is that it created a contributory commons with an obligation to contribute back. So that you got rights but they were conditional rights. And it started out as something that you had an informal community 
with ties that bound, and the ultimate sanction was not anything legal, so to speak. It was a socio-legal kind of remedy, a grassroots remedy of ostracism. But I mean, obviously, the community has changed. It's more pluralistic, it's more multicultural. You've got new entrants, you've got businesses, businesses with hybrid models, so businesses doing proprietary and free, businesses doing free, etc., etc. And how are you going to bind those newbies or the new entrants to the community? You're not going to bind them through ostracism if they're not particularly bothered. So there's always this threat that if you've got a jurisdiction which doesn't really get free software, then it can bring the whole, you know, it can cause a huge legal threat. And then what do you do? I mean, it's been okay up to this because the small number of cases that have actually gone to the courts have been upheld. I mean, the, the licensing terms, from what I understand, have been largely accepted. <coughs> but I mean, there are a few jurisdictions, not very many. So I'm, I'm going to yeah. I'm really confused by your assumption there, because you're saying that the, the GPL was designed to not use the legal system initially. That's, that's just, I, I don't see how that's right, because the original plan of the GPL was to use the legal system to enforce the cultural well, norms. Well, if you're, if you're looking at internationalizing a legal instrument, based on a license designed in the US. It may have been the intention, but why weren't you then looking for an international treaty? We, we were at the Berne Convention. It already existed when you was right. Yeah, but the Berne Convention just, it establishes some basic norms. I mean, it doesn't internationalize copyright law. It does enough so that the GPL can work, which was, has been shown. Yeah, I know that, but I mean, the GPL is still, it's subject to national law. And it's not a criticism. I mean, you have to deal with it within the, the paradigm that you've got at that the time. Part, I'm, I'm disagreeing basically with that first point, that there's this assumption that it was designed primarily to use ostracism as the way of enforcement. That, that's false. That's actually what the permissive license uses. Bradley, I think if we could so. just have the talk continue. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Um, well, it was, it was something that went in tandem. And I mean, I'm going back to some of the writings from even Moglen and also from Eric Raymond that did certainly say that, that you had licenses, that they had a binding force in the community. I'm not actually saying that it was a primary, it was a primary sanction, actually. I'm saying that it was one of the sanctions. Because, I mean, you can operate at several different levels, depending on the community. I mean, if you're taking on Microsoft, you want to go through the courts. But maybe you want to have some sort of an ostracism, because it's cheaper. It's practical. It is, is that clear? So the ultimate resource to the courts then. So then there's this problem of the nature of the legal instrument, whether it's a license or a contract. Um, and I've been a bit schizoid about my spelling of it because I often publish in, in Britain and if you put in like license with an S, forget it, they're going to get really deeply offended, so you have to use the C. Um, and then there, so for example, um, then we get to the point of whether a license can bind globally. And I, I mean, I think the discussions bring, bring out that pretty much it can't, because it depends on, well, every legal system is different. So what do you do then? Do you sort of take the Creative Commons approach and do you redraft the license in every jurisdiction? And that is, that, that is one approach, but the problem with that then is that what happens when you've got developers working from different, uh, different jurisdictions where the laws are different? So let's just look at then how it actually breaks down. Um, and I, I mean, I think that Lessig has written that Stallman's real genius is that the license relied on copyright to ensure contract license uh, was complied with. But it makes some assumptions. So you've got an assumption that the copyright is an international standard, but it isn't. 
And I mean, it's fair enough that I'm not contradicting what Till said yesterday, in that when you've got a European directive, it does establish norms. What it does do is, is it establishes basic norms. So it establishes the term of copyright, for example, that it's a life of the author plus 70 years. That's pretty much international now. It's not completely international. Mexico has got a term of a life plus 100 years. And then um, the other thing uh, is that in terms of what copyright derives from, in the UK, for example, copyright derives from statute. This goes back to a House of Lords case in 1774, Donaldson and Beckett. But when we're talking about international instruments establishing basic norms, it doesn't stop countries coming along then and adding on different protections. Now, that can be very good or very bad, depending on who's accusing who of doing what and depending on who actually owns the rights. So, for example, the world's first copyright case is a case from the 6th century. And it was an Irish case, and basically it came from uh, a disputed ownership of copies of the Bible. So St. Finnan had actually done a, um, a copy of the four Gospels. And St. Colum Kill, who was also known as Columba in Scotland, um, he came along and he made an unauthorised copy. Now, in the days prior to the printing press, because we're talking about 6th century here, so it was a, a pretty arduous task. And they had a squabble over who owned the copyright. Now, as you can see here, obviously this is a cartoon I got off the internet, and um, you've got this battle here. So, basically, what actually happened in that case is that St. Finnan went to complain to the king at the time, King Dermot, and King Dermot's dictum was, to every cow its calf. And so we're supposed to take from analogy, to every book its copy. So whoever has authored the book uh, also owns the copy. Sorry, just uh, another point on that. Um, just to go back to that slide, what actually ensued from that is there was a battle over it, and 3,000 people were killed. St. Colum Kill then went off to Scotland, and he became a, known, a very, very beloved saint and um, he's known as the Dove of Peace, so obviously he managed to screen out that earlier, uh, that earlier little glitch in his history. <laughs> now, the thing about it is that you might say, well, why the hell are you bringing in a 6th century case? And the reason is that the majority of cases in Ireland are cases regarding file sharing, because that's kind of a hot topic in European copyright law at the moment. We have a judge in the High Court who is dominating all the copyright cases, and you're going to see, like, this happens an awful lot in that you'll have one particular judge and because our laws aren't terribly detailed they've got a huge amount of freedom to add in additional conditions and while you might say well we're a tiny jurisdiction and it doesn't really matter we've got a very big and growing postgraduate sector so an awful lot of people are coming from different jurisdictions coming to Ireland finding out about these cases and because of the persuasive nature of the common law perhaps some of these ideas will get spread but in Ireland, just like the UK, and bearing in mind that we're both common law jurisdictions, so when we're talking about copyright being the same, we're going to see that there are actually huge differences. In Ireland, it does come from statute. So it's the life of the author plus 70 years as laid out by the directive. It also is a constitutional right. And this was just a comment by one of the judges in 1994, a very early case when judges didn't understand an awful lot about technology. And he said it's a constitutional right, and we're going to protect it as property. Now the problem with that is the minute that you constitutionalise copy, copyright, and you're dealing with it as a property right, you've got to look at the nature of what the property right is. And in Ireland, rights come from natural law. 
natural law, if you've got a, a right coming from natural law, it's perpetual. So it goes way beyond, it's potentially infinite. And the breadth is unlimited. Because the Constitution will only ever give you a line or two on what a right actually constitutes. And the judges have got a huge amount of freedom then to add in. So then, unlike other common law jurisdictions, so unlike the, uh, the earlier case there that I mentioned about Donaldson and Beckett in the, in the UK, um, there may be a source in the common law as well. What's the common law? Who knows? The common law in Ireland is a term that judges use when they're not really authorised to do anything, but they just want to throw something in there. So it would generally be a natural right. Again, natural rights, generally what the Irish judges will do is they look at some papal encyclical and they'll say, okay, well, you know, the, the Pope has said this, so okay, that, that'll do me today, and come and, come and get us. And because there's not an awful lot of case law, that stands. And the point about the Constitution, uh, the, um, copyright being a constitutional uh, right, has been approved in some of these file-sharing cases by this judge who's been drafted in from the criminal law courts. So every time infringement or downloading or anything like this is mentioned, he's in the zone of crime. And we've got to clamp down on these pirates. And I mean, his judgments are like 100 pages long. So then it may also exist as a human right. This is another one of his loquacious editions. It could be an unenumerated constitutional right, and an unenumerated right is there's a section of rights which just talk about human rights in general. Um, judges have been very activist because there's, there's a list in the constitution of different rights like the right to property, right to form a family, right to education, but they're not um, comprehensive. So the judges since the 1960s have been expanding rights that aren't specifically notated in the constitution, but that they say, oh, well, as humans, we've got these rights, or God has given us this, or whatever, and thrown them in, okay? Very worryingly, we've got a Supreme Court case, Gormley and EMI, from 1999, in which the judge, again, was ad-libbing, and he said that originality exists in thoughts. Now, obviously, thoughts are the realm of ideas. And so one of the questions I always set for students, or that I like to set, is that during uh, the summer I went to, I, I visited an art gallery in, in the UK, the Hayward Art Gallery, and they had an exhibition on invisible art. So blank canvases and rooms which have got nothing in them, etc., uh, etc. Et is that protectable under Irish copyright law? Well, if you're accepting this dictum from the Supreme Court, you could certainly argue that copyright extends to ideas. Now, that's pretty worrying, I think. And then, on another question of the moral rights of software programmers, they're recognised in Ireland, and they're not recognised in the UK. So what I'm saying here, you've got two very similar regional legal systems, the UK and Ireland, both existing within the EU. Um, they both derive much of their intellectual property laws from the EU. And this doesn't even take into account uh, copyright in civil law jurisdictions within the EU, so the foundation is very flimsy. And I mean, I think you're always going to have a big difference in the discourse between common law lawyers and civil law lawyers, because when you've got somebody from Germany or France, etc., their laws are considerably more detailed. The judges have got very little freedom. And so, when they want to know what a right is, they look at the law. With us, we don't have those constraints. 
and everything anyway is referable back to the Constitution. The Constitution is the supreme law of the state. So whatever the statute says doesn't matter. I can throw in anything else. And I've got a huge amount of flexibility to throw that in. Now, um, then this is kind of Ian's contribution, really, whether uh, licenses are contracts, whether they're contracts or licenses, and what actually the difference might be, and um, who actually gets to decide. So basically, a license is a permission to do something that would otherwise be illegal. So to pass over to some, somebody's land, to go to the supermarket, to buy something, etc., um, etc. Et it just requires you to comply. But conditions um, that would be part of contract law, uh, they require something different. So, and I think the FSF position is that the GNU GPL is a software license. That's always been the argument. And correct me if I'm wrong, that if you don't comply, the, the permission is revoked. And the FSF or other author will rely on their copyright to get compliance. So that you use, share, modify your software, providing that you also pass on the license. And um, Ian, when he was actually kind of like looking at this and deconstructing it, he said it certainly starts out as a license and it's, it will stay as a license, the license being a unilateral um, permission. And it'll tell you what, as I said, what you can or can't do. So for the compliant passive end user, the GNU GPL stays as a license because it's a one-way street. <coughs> um, and for the compliant active sharer and modifier, well, that's never going to end up in court. So we're never going to actually see whether there's a transition, at, at what point the agreement also becomes a contract. Um, what is a contract? And this brings me to the, the second kind of leg of my talk in that copyright, as we can see, it's not an international harmonized standard. Uh, neither is a contract, because in most civil law jurisdictions, a contract will comprise offer and acceptance and nothing more. But in common law jurisdictions, there's a third element of consideration. So consideration generally is some sort of um, monetary benefit, but it may not necessarily be mo monetary. And there's always been a bit of dis a discussion about this, whether they, the requirement to contribute back, whether there can be condition, uh, or sorry, consideration in that agreement or not. Now, the argument that they're solely contracts, um, and I blame the absent male for this. So it's not, this is necessarily the FSF position, uh, because if you classify it just as a contract, then you're only going to get contractual remedies if the case ends up in court, so they would be damages rather than an additional copyright remedy of injunction that you might actually want to stop uh, somebody from continuing with their activity. And do the courts agree? Now, again, in Germany, uh, it seems that the licenses are treated contractually, but in the US, it's more complex. So what Jacobson and Katzer seems to have done is that you've got a contract analysis of the terms. So the court looked at whether there was, they, we were talking about conditions or covenants, whether there was offer, offer acceptance and consideration. Um, but then they also, because I think they got it, they understood what was actually being um, attempted or what was you know, the, the intention of the agreement, that you've also got the remedy of injunction granted through a contract analysis. Now, of course, again, you've got the problem that Jacobson only binds within its circuit. It's persuasive authority, but no more. And you see, I wonder that if you had a case like this coming before the Irish courts, um, where everything has been very proprietary. I mean, our universities use proprietary software. Like when I contrast that with uh, Scotland, for instance, they're all running open office. So 
there's a big difference there. And I think that during the Celtic Tiger, because there was so much money, they just didn't care. And in any case, they don't get it. Like, you're just beating your head off a brick wall if you start talking about this. Everybody is using Linux in the computer department, like the techies are. But there's no kind of philosophy about everything was privatized, so it was just a kind of a mindless privatization. And now, in economic difficulty, well, when you want to ever get anything started, you need a bit of a financial input. It's just not there. So, you know, the politicians are looking to re-election and pensions, and they're not interested. So, so um, yeah. Now, <laughs> when I talk about... We're we'll laughing because he's obsessed with my front door. Really? Okay. Well, I mean, this kind of, it, it, it first struck me as a potential solution, but I came at it from the public international law perspective. And I wrote about it a little bit in my thesis in 2001. So it was just this idea that, you know, when I was talking about the license, what I, what I meant actually about the GNU GPL is there's a transition because you don't actually test it in, like, you don't actually know what the legal um, solidity of it is until it ends up in court. So it's got, perhaps, it, it operates at a whole host of different levels. Mm -hmm. If it's within a community, it finds. But obviously, there's also the legal perspective, because it's been done within a legal construct. But I just want to go back to the point that I made earlier, is that software or computer programs were a, a cuckoo in the copyright nest. And basically, at the moment, obviously, free software, it, it's kind of within that, that paradigm. It's like taking a proprietary, um, well, you know, it, it's relying on property rights. So if, if you had had kind of, if copyright had never been applied in the first place, and you just forgot about that, and you just had free software pre-copyright, what would have been the legal structure that you would have used in order to protect it? And I just want to throw that question out there. I'm not necessarily seeking to answer it. So anyway, um, the Lex Mercatoria, public international and the private international law solution. So basically, um, I think that when you've got uh, a lawless and unregulated realm, communities will make it up as they go along. If you've got no legislation or you don't have an interest or you don't have expertise or whatever it is. And Lex Mercatoria, obviously, it comes from medieval tradesmen who were traveling from all over Africa and Asia and doing business in Europe. And if there was defective goods, well, obviously, the trade would grind to a halt if somebody couldn't get recompense. And when you didn't have any international law in place, they just devised their own rules. So it was kind of law in a lawless zone, so to speak. And I guess the, the techie equivalent of that is the internet of the noosphere, whatever you want to call it, because when the internet was created as a new space, no laws applied. Laws were extended afterwards. Um, so there was a place to, to come and trade and exchange goods. So the BSD license wasn't particularly demanding. And you'll pardon me for Latinizing or for bastardizing <laughs> Latinizing. Lex Luganus introduced a sort of a grassroots legislation. So what happened to the, the law merchant? The law merchant being the kind of the informally agreed trade rules that, uh, that merchants drew up themselves. Well, it became part of international commercial law, so it's an example of ground-up legislation. And then there's a question as to whether an international treaty is achievable or desirable. So I had always sort of seen it, because I, I don't have expertise really in, in private international law. It was a kind of a public international law perspective, because I thought, well, if you're trying to internationalize something, 
you actually can't do it through copyright. You can't do it through copyright because it's going to take too long. And you would actually have to find you're stretching the law too much. And the other thing, too, is that you've got the problem that it's always going to come back to judges who can you know, subvert it or subvert the intentions of it by narrowing it, by broadening it, by whatever. So this is just an idea. UN Convention on the Rights of Software Sharing and Reuse. So it's like something that you take it outside of the realm of copyright. I mean, you don't stop dealing with the day-to-day -day practicalities, but you have this running in parallel. Or you have you know, a, a sort of a response to the, the grassroots looking at it, drafting legislation um, based on what exactly it is that is being sought to protect. There are always going to be difficulties in this. There's problems of negotiation. Who do you involve? This isn't insurmountable. When you think of all the treaties that have been introduced, like the Convention on the Rights of Disabilities, people with disabilities, for example, I mean, that always has to start out somewhere. It's, it would be a very slow process, but I mean, reforming copyright law, it ain't going to happen at the moment. Um, and internationalizing contract law isn't going to happen either. So the other thing too is something like this could be very political. And I just give the example of Extremadura there. Um, I was kind of very lucky really because, um, because I had done my master's in this and I'd done a lot of uh, work in the Spanish-speaking world because I, in another life I used to live in Spain, so I, I speak fluent Spanish. And just as luck would have it, a lot of Latin American countries started to sort of switch over to free software. And Extremadura obviously had that project where, um, you know, they, they had this idea of digitizing the whole community and setting up internet, well, kind of internet training centers, all based on free software. And I was thinking of doing my PhD on that. And of course, the regional government changed last year and they've now abandoned the effort. So everybody is out of a job. So, phew, <laughs> I'm very relieved that I, I chose a different topic and that I'm not writing a historical document. But I mean, it really brought something home to me about that. That um, when I, I, I spent some time there about, I suppose, seven years ago, and I was very interested in the process because I always thought, oh, well, you know, the Spanish are very anarchic, so the, all this has been ground up. So I asked some of the developers, what was the single most important thing? in terms of getting this whole thing deployed, they said top-down decision. So it was somebody in government who just got it, got and understood the savings that would be made, etc. But when he's out of government, then the problem is, so really, if, if, if the community ever sort of aims for something like this, it really has to be cross-party. Um, and is there any other potential measure? So public international law. Um, it could provide potentially a fallback position that copyright doesn't actually provide. And the thing about it is that once you've got an international treaty in place, it brings pressure to bear on countries because you can do all sorts of things like set up a court system. Uh, I'll just give you a very brief example. Way outside um, the software arena, but the force of the European Court of Human Rights um, on Ireland's abortion laws like, basically, Ireland is sort of being shamed into international compliance on something that nobody wants, well, nobody in politics wants to touch. So when you've got a convention or some sort of international legal instrument and some sort of adjudicatory body and you get one favorable judgment, then if countries aren't willing to sort of get on board, the power of shame 
and kind of a sort of almost like an ostracism can be very powerful because of course international law as well unless it's passed into the individual countries if you've got a dual system um, it's soft law it's not legally binding right then the second strand of Lex Mercatoria and this doesn't necessarily need to operate outside of public international law because you can have several different strings to your bow going on at the same time is that this governs private legal relations between international uh, legal entities and it's kind of grassroots legislation like contract but it kind of has got an international flavor and so and again this is Ian's contribution that you've got well countries within the EU will generally uh, rely on Rome 1 and if you've got an EU country for example doing business with the US you can choose so this UNCITRAL model is often used and so you've got mutually agreed uh, clauses going into contracts so this brings me back to the question as to whether you've got like whether the GPL was a license or a contract so when you've got a passive licensee it's just an end user you're just dealing with the license there and um, the contractual party um, Ian was saying that this party is more likely to be engaged in commercial activity and so they're legally likely to be legally advised and so the whole idea of putting uh, choice of law clauses into the contract is more defensible because they're not likely to be a weak party do you see I mean like if you've got a, a passive licensee well they're not legally advised but probably they don't need to be but generally when the GPL passes from that license stage to also encompassing a contractual stage then as I said, the entity is more likely to be legally advised. So just my final point really is the FLOSS community, it can create its own governing laws. It can protect FLOSS as a technological heritage or patrimony, not just by licenses and not just as cuckoos. So thank you very much. U.S. law, so I'm a little uh, so I'm familiar with Jacketson versus Katzer and that kind of the world that, that I that I work in. And I'm curious when you say that that copyright a copyright remedy is not available for a contract in other jurisdictions. I'm just trying to understand that because and maybe if I can give an example outside software. So say for example, there was a contract with a book publisher, and you're only allowed to publish paperback versions, and instead the person publishing also per, per, uh, Published hardback version. So could you not get a remedy that says you're not allowed to publish hardback, uh, an injunctive remedy that says you're not allowed to publish hardback? You could if they're reading it as a license. I'm sorry? If they're reading it as a license, you could. But if they're reading it as a contract, what would your remedy be? Not necessarily. It depends damages. Just damages, yeah. so you can't get, you couldn't necessarily get an injunctive Not necessarily. <laughs> So the, the reason I'm so skeptical is because because there have been academic researchers warning us that the system we're using will not continue to work to defend software freedom for decades, and they keep every generation of them comes and tells us it won't work anymore, and yet it keeps working. And my view has always been that the the force of the other side, the force of organizations like the MPAA and the RIA in the U.S., who, who are basically well, doing a thing that in in abstract I think is horrible. They're pushing basically their view of copyright, which is the incredible, giving it all this power around the world and forcing agreements, uh, international treaties that make it happen. The, the, the value for that for copyleft has always been that we can free ride on that, use it against itself, 
to ensure freedom. And at that, over the last 20 years, has gotten even stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. So that's helped copyleft to get stronger. So, so I, I, and I'm worried that your suggestions of we should go to the UN or something like that, that that's so easily gained by lobbyists with lots of power. And in the copyright side, we have those lobbyists working for us. So, so I, I, I feel like you're, I, I'm not really underst understanding fully where you're saying, oh, this, the, we can't trust that copyright can't be internationalized. I, I didn't really, I'm not really understanding that. Well, so. copyright is a bundle of national rights. It's different in every jurisdiction. You've got like international treaties like the Berne Convention that will establish norms that are just basic norms. So for example, it establishes a minimum period of protection. That's mm -hmm. one thing. And it got rid of the formalities for the protection of copyright. That's another thing. And that's kind of, it doesn't establish an awful lot more. It doesn't tell you, for example, uh, it, it won't tell you the detail. So it doesn't help the courts in that regard. It just establishes basic, basic rights. And then national law fills that in. So the copyright statute in Ireland, which still doesn't tell you an awful lot, it's over 200 pages. Mm -hmm. So, but that still doesn't tell you an awful lot because you can have a whole host of rights that derive from different sources. Well, in Britain, there's no written constitution. So that's another thing that would distinguish our law from their law. And I know that you can, I mean, you can certainly adopt the approach that, well, it's worked up to this, so let's hope it continues. But I mean, lawyers are always going to come at this, um, I suppose, from the perspective of looking at the potential pitfalls. Yeah, I agree. And why I, I can imagine, I mean, most GPL violators uh, out there, they're hiring lawyers to try and destroy copyleft and yeah. try and eviscerate copyleft. Um, but on, on the other side, to try and do the kinds of things you're talking about, they're substantially harder than than doing what we're doing now. It's substantially more expensive and will be much more easily gained. So if we were going to UN and lobby, how would we prevent uh, the, the the other folks coming in and saying, well, what we're going to do is make an international agreement that all free software licensing should be permissive, because that's what the corporations would come in and force, uh, and we wouldn't be able to outspend them. So how, how, how would we, I think I think that would probably eviscerate copyleft a lot faster than some one jurisdiction going bad and not interpreting GPL correctly. See yeah. what I'm saying? I, I'm just wondering how, how it actually works and how it would work in practice. How would we get the UN to create something like that that would actually be good for freedom? For freedom. Well, by being very clear about your terms. I mean, any international law that you pass is going to be um, susceptible to the same sort of attacks. You're, I mean, you're never going to have just a group of people who dominate, and you're just going to have No, the corporations would. I mean, companies that want to want to do proprietary software mm -hmm. could outspend us and dominate any process where we're trying to create new rules. I don't, I don't know how we defeat that. That's the hardest problem of creating something new, some new legal structure. And I, I, I'm just asking, how, how do we, in your, in your proposal, how do, we, how do we defeat that part of it? Um, by by having an appropriate uh, number of groups involved, by having appropriately drafted conditions, um, I suppose by looking back at the, the cases that have already been upheld, and looking at you know um, maybe drawing in some legal practitioners or judges even as to why they've why they've upheld the license, what value they saw in them. And how do we pay for all that? <laughs> Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean we, we, our organizations have two and three people working for them, and, and these companies that want everything to be proprietary have, have thousands and thousands of blocks. How did you pay for this meeting? Um, we didn't. <laughs> 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 the, the university donated the space. Okay. And, um, and yet we're here, which yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, we're here, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
um, companies involved that have got a, an interest. Um, I don't know how you actually go about funding things, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that I've got all the answers or anything like that, but it's throwing an idea out there for getting further legal solutions. Oh, I, I agree it's an interesting idea. It just seems, I mean, it seems the non-starter is a policy decision. Mm -hmm. That's my point, and I, I can't get past that part of it. Mm -hmm. So if you can find ways to do that, but tell us. What was the purpose then in turning, like in relying on a license and hoping initially that that license would have international force? Oh, because the, as I said, because the other side is basically creating a pathway, right? Because the, the folks the folks who hold copyrights that want to do horrible things with them, mm. like the, the motion picture people and the recording industry and so, the publishing industries, they're forcing international treaties that make, when I agree with you, a very horrible copyright law, mm. and we just use that for free and say, oh, well, we're going to actually use it to defend freedom yeah. instead, of, instead of doing the bad things with it. But did you have foresight of that when the GPL was done? I think our, I didn't, because I'm not. No, no, smart. but I'm but just saying. Armist did. I think Armist did. Sorry, the, there was a question up there. Did you ever have a chance to uh, discuss your ideas and your thinking with uh, people at Google? Because I, I have the impression that uh, Google has a strong interest in open source software. Well, no, I haven't spoken to Google. Um, it's just been a question of time, really, that I've been busy with other things. But I, I did discuss this with Richard Stallman a few years ago, but we couldn't get past the not being able to mention the term intellectual property or patents. So. <laughs> yeah. I understand. So, yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know, when you talked about the um, license versus a contract and where to draw that line, it sounded like you were advocating for sort of drawing that line between the passive user no. and... You know. I, I wasn't advocating anything. I was just an observation okay. of the different stages. So you were sort of saying that... Um, you were sort of saying that the analysis could go in different ways at that line. Um, and you said that you think that um, it might not be a bad place to draw the line, I think, because no. of the sophistication of the parties, because they might be represented. No, I, I didn't no. make any value judgment okay. at all. That's what I wanted to know. It was an observation. That's, that's, that's exactly yeah, my question, that, oh, actually. Oh, okay, that because you could put in choice of law clauses, because if you weren't dealing with somebody who <coughs> has a end user, they were likely to be legally advised. Well, I guess what confused me about that is that in this context, I don't, having been a lawyer at the Software Freedom Law Center, um, I think that a lot of people who are in that non-passive use situation are in an unrepresented situation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's if true. free software is to be continue to be successful, more and more people will be in that position. Mm -hmm. So I sort of wanted to inquire about that, but it sounds like there isn't a, a value judgment in there that you have, you're not advocating for line to be drawn. But it, it's just that it might have significance in the courts. Mm. Yeah? I wanted to comment on the Your, your ideas may be um, not um, 
not necessarily causing anyone to, uh, to oppose it. So by not attempting what you say, uh, based on fear, probably, or based on, uh, on low expectations, um, you may be wasting a chance for <coughs> something new here, and an alternative, which may not actually trigger uh, any opposing action from, from the prior to the party. Um, so I thought, yeah, just want to share that it may be, it may be possible to coexist, uh, coexist with, with uh, media companies who have their interests and want to protect them for and also create a legal environment for free software at the same time. I would have believed I would have believed that more easily before what happened in ISO with uh, with the OOXML stuff. That, that, that companies will quickly enter and try to game any system that tries to make something that's good for software. Uh, pretty much any any legal listed structure like standards body or BWAN. We've seen that over and over again. As soon as they hear about it, they come in and outspend us. But you've had anti-soap lessons then, too. Oh, I, I, that's all time. I have some comments about, about that. That was actually, they, they, they outmaneuvered us on that. Too. And I mean, I'm just saying that there's a different, it's a different cultural environment around, around copyright. That's the point is, you know, don't look and say, just because it's been this way in the past for 20 years, assume that it's that way from this point forward, too. Mm -hmm. I think that's. Yeah, I think actually, you trigger actually a position when you when you cause fear on the other side. Mm -hmm. So if you find a way to uh, to communicate the idea that, that it shows, look, this is it's not yeah. it's not trying to get something from you. If I thought there was a two percent chance we could get the UN to add a right to copy, share, and modify software to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, I'd do it. I think there's a zero percent chance of that. Well, if you don't try, there's zero percent chance. And sometimes it's just the power of talking about it. Yeah, yeah. This kind of grassroots force as well, like the SOFA, and I mean the defeat of the, the proposed um, directive on, on patents a number of years ago in, in the EU. I mean, like there's so much lobbying goes on in the EU, but I mean, it's not always the proprietary companies that actually win out. So, and what I am talking about is that like, if you strip off copyright, because the law came after, the, the edifice, so to speak, then what would an appropriate protection for that be? Okay. Any more questions? Okay, well, thanks very much. So, so Karen, do you have any, any, do you want to yell at me again for that? No, but maybe to give some context to people listening to it, it was that I, I think because of the time schedule or whatever, or because Maureen was less well known in this community, there weren't very many people in the audience at that point. Yeah, there was only, it was only like 15 or 20 people there. Yeah, which isn't, which happens to, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> well, in, in any session talk at a large conference, actually, quite frankly, at a conference with that many tracks, 
Uh, 15 uh, and, and so many people moving around and, and that conference, I think we've mentioned before that that conference is very spread out uh, across multiple buildings at the university. Yeah. So it's difficult to move between talks. And you easily miss talks that you want to go see anyway because the timing is not coordinated and it takes so long to get from one place to another. Yeah, they're talking about fixing that again. <laughs> Every year they Every talk year. about fixing that, uh, making a, making coordinated time slots. So, and then I think that what happens at these conference, at a conference, especially like FOSDEM, is that if you're not either an extremely well-known speaker, um, or you're talking about something that's very that's controversial or has some kind of like titillating title. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know it's it's hard to fill a room because there's so much going on, and also the hallway track is so good. Um, but so so but I, but I think that there was one like I can't remember what the schedule was like, but there had been some talks that were more um, you know that had a lot of attention earlier in that same day. So there had been we had been you know overflowing in our room earlier in that day. And then for this talk, I think there was another one of those in another room. And so, you know, we wound up having very, so, so part of the context was like, you know, was I felt bad that there weren't that many people in the room anyway, because, you know, as an organizer of the Mm -hmm. room, I sort of feel bad when it's not as well attended. And then, you know, so, and the fact that, that, you know, part of it is that I think Maureen is a little less well known because she doesn't speak at as many events and, you know, um, and I think that this also sometimes happens with women speakers as well, mm-hmm. where it's harder to get started. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't really feel, I, I mean, the, 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 actually, none of that really. And we had very few women speakers. Agree, I agree with that. But that didn't part really bother me, in, in part because she was actually filling in for her student who, did, who didn't show. Um, and I actually did that to a professor once uh, when I graduated. I was supposed to give a talk at a, at a paper we got accepted. And I graduated and... This was when I was undergrad and I was supposed to give the talk. Like actually each of us in turn, all the students who were on the paper were all supposed to be there. And then slowly but surely none of us showed, like three students and the professor. Oh, no. And the professor had the good talk. He was really mad. He was kind of a jerk though. So I didn't care <laughs> that much, but, um, that's Keith Gallagher. I've mentioned him on my Identica feed. Um, he, he, I mean, he was a reasonably good professor, but he was not a nice guy. Um, and so anyway, he, he was pretty mad that he had to give the talk himself. So that's, that's what happened to, um, well, to be fair, also we invited Maureen to submit a talk. You know, because I'd seen her speak before and thought she was great. Yeah. So, so I mean, she was filling in for a student. So, I mean, I, well, she sort of was, but she wasn't. No, she said that at the beginning of the talk. She, she said that she. Oh, was, that maybe the topic of the talk and what they had decided to talk. Right. About. She was. She. It was her. It's been a while. It so. was her students, like PhD, like not PhD, because lawyers don't do PhDs. Thesis. But, but thesis, whatever. So, so she was presenting. So, I, I, I mean, looking back, that's what I feel the most bad about because she wasn't actually presenting her own work. She was presenting her that's students' right. work. I remember. And now. so I do, in in retrospect a year and a half later, I do feel bad that I gave her a hard time about presenting work that wasn't necessarily, she was had to defend an academic work that wasn't hers, basically. Right. I mean, she was the advisor, but it didn't seem right um, in some sense that, that I was giving her a hard time about work that wasn't hers. So that's the probably the main part that I regret. But a lot of the stuff she was saying was just so wrong that I, and, and just so disconnected. I, I, I didn't disagree. I don't disagree that some of it yeah. was a little disconnected from where we're standing, but she's an academic and has a more academic perspective. And, you know, I, I, I thought that maybe your reaction was a little over the top, given the nature of the disconnect. Well, she starts out with saying, I'm not a practitioner, therefore I can answer the questions that were raised yesterday. And I'm like, you don't know anything about this, so you can answer the questions we had yesterday. Well, I don't remember that particular piece, but, um, because it, it was so a long time ago yeah, at this point, so. but, um, but it's true that someone with a different, 
perspective can sometimes answer questions differently and more interestingly. I mean, you know, I, I think that people who are practitioners, especially in the legal field, means they're advocating for one side or another. But she was so poorly. <laughs> you should have seen Bradley's informed. face just then. She he looked so angry at she me. She was so poorly. I'm not angry at you. I, I just, I, she was so poorly informed about GPL enforcement. I, I mean, this is the thing that I know the most about, right? So there is that issue. But she, she's talked about how social pressure and ostracism were the ways that license GPLs enforce. And of course, that's, that's the GPL exists for when that doesn't work, right? Because that's how the Apache license is quote enforced unquote, i.e. if you don't release your Apache license code, the community puts pressure on you to release it as opposed to actually using the legal yeah. mechanism. I mean, this is a problem with academic research anyway, is that, is that what exists to academic researchers often is what has been written about previously. So sometimes it can get dated. Uh, well, it's, it's not just that it's, it's dated. I mean, they don't. And the thing is, is that, that if you're a legal researcher, you should be researching cases, right? And, and stuff like that, which she wasn't even familiar with the cases that we. But relative to the got. use of the GPL, there aren't that many cases. True, but but her whole. The, I mean, again, this this is where I, I this is where I was wrong to give her a hard time because her, her her I guess I should say her students' whole idea was centered around this thing that oh well copyright just doesn't work internationally. They she never yeah, made the that. That she never great. made the case that that's not true. We've got good cases that have happened in both Germany and the U.S. So we've done it in multiple countries. If she wanted to be saying it doesn't work in Ireland, which is some of what she was saying, right? If she wants to come up and say I understand Irish law and we've got a problem in Ireland, okay, I, I, I would have I would have welcomed that talk, right? Tell me why the GPL you think as an Irish lawyer, an Irish legal academic, you don't think it'll work in the Republic of Ireland. I'd love to hear about that. Right. But she wasn't focused on that. She was focused on it doesn't work internationally with examples of why it doesn't work in Ireland, which were vague, right? Because that wasn't her main point. Her main point was it doesn't work as an international thing. And so there was no, she had no clear argument to dispel the question. One of the later questions I asked her about the Berne Convention on Copyright is what we've relied on. Like, why tell Tell me exactly what, show me in burn where there's something missing that makes it not work. As far as you publish in one country, you enforce in another. Just sh show me where burn falls apart on that. She couldn't show me. She couldn't point to here in burn is where it doesn't work. Like if she had a quote from burn and said, look, here's the key place in burn we would have to rely on. Look how this doesn't work. She didn't have that. And if that's her center of her thesis, it does not work internationally or her student's thesis, she should be able to say, oh, here's, here's the one thing you could rely on is burn. And look, you can't rely on it. Like that should be the setup for her talk. That should be the first five minutes of burn doesn't work. I'm sorry to tell you, burn doesn't work. Um, she didn't have that because she didn't, wasn't able to say that. She was basically saying it, it, there's weird things in Ireland, which okay, but then show me the evidence for that and focus on that if that's the issue. Um, I mean, to, and, and, and to use, so oh, Eric Raymond is the source to quote. Yeah, that's so funny. I mean, and she quoted Eric Raymond back to me as if I was going to believe him, uh, and then quote Eben back to me as if I'm going to believe him. Right? <laughs> I mean, she, not, she wasn't picking well, the sources. Well, they are certainly that very high-profile people in our field. Yeah. Even Eric Raymond, people still know who he is. People True. I, it was funny because uh, I I um I was invited to give one of the last talks I gave at FSF. Uh, I was invited to. A conference uh, for this uh, subcommittee is like a socio sociology computer science crossover department called the computing communities. Like apparently there's a couple of different universities that have this department uh, that where they study uh, computing communities, communities that form around computer, around various computing things. Um, you know, and they, some of them study the old mainframe days and what, how that created communities, stuff like that. And there was a guy there presenting and he was, he was starting to try to dispel that 
quote open source unquote was not a computing community or something and was using all these quotes from eric raymond as all his like his whole evidence was a bunch of quotes from eric raymond and i gave him a really hard time and everybody later on people came to me and like we were really glad you were here because apparently this guy is not Mm. well liked (laughs) in in this particular community and of course but he's high enough up or whatever because you know how these academic things work he's like some important professor somewhere at some i forget what university it was even but they were all glad that i gave him a hard time because nobody else politically could give him a hard time in that community but but it was the same thing where he's like oh eric raymond said this therefore we should just rely on that as i mean it's completely anecdotal and it's just like one guy who literally calls himself a gun nuts opinion um why why are we relying on him (laughs) as the as a source he says a lot of really wacky things yeah, I mean, but yeah. and that's his own. I mean, I call him a gun nut because that's what his his blog is literally called—a gun nut or something. Oh, like that. really? That's, yeah, yeah. He he. I that's, just he think calls him himself is, that. Is uh, thinking he's. Yeah. The, I wouldn't. He's, ca- I wouldn't. He's the god Pan. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call him a call him that if he didn't call himself that. Um, so yeah. It, Boy, this is like the the free as in trash talking. Yeah. Well, episode. I mean. <laughs> I, I, I'm calling Eric Raymond what he calls himself. I mean, what, why is that bad? Well, no, I was, I was kind of. Yeah, well, I, I, I moved on from that. I wasn't going to drill you too much attention to that. So, um, so, and I asked her at the end what, what international treaty we should be using. And she's like, well, we should write our own. We should go under, like, convince the UN that somehow we should, we should add software freedom to the UN Declaration on Human Rights as if that's, has any viability whatsoever. As I a, thought it was a cool idea. I don't mind the idea. I wish that software freedom were in the UN Declaration of I Human Rights. I sort of just wanted but, to say, go do that. But honestly, after that talk, she probably felt so disgusted with our community. That she I probably asked her like, how, how we fund that, how we fight against people who are going to try to stop us, you know, and... I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't have a, she doesn't have an answer. She has, I mean, so she started by saying she can answer the questions raised yesterday, but... She doesn't have an answer. She did not have any sort of way that we could get these things done, create these treaties, create what we needed by way of copyright. I'm glancing at Bradley's notes and they say in all caps, no answer. Yeah. Well, well I point. <laughs> she dodged the question twice. Sorry. Yeah, well, I, well, I ca- well, that was, that was specifically, that the point there was specifically regarding the MPAA issue and that the MPAA, one, one of the reasons that this has worked is we free ride in some sense on the abusive uses of copyright because the, as much as the MPAA or the RAA push for internationalization through WIPO, whatever, whatever, whatever regime they try to use, if copyright becomes more international because of that, we get to rely on that because we rely on copyright. And I kept, a- I asked her twice, what, why, why is that not sufficient? We, we designed this system so that we could free ride on what they're doing. What are they failing to do? Like, like my, my distinction I was trying to make was what are they failing to do that copyleft needs that they don't need, right? So if there's a gap, if they're trying to do something with copyright that actually works against copyleft somehow, for example, or misses a point on something copyleft needs to do. She, she didn't know copyleft well enough to answer that question. I mean, that's, that's sort of what it comes down to. It's like, well, you, it, it, maybe there is an answer to that. I would like to know if there were. And I compare it to somebody like Gabe's talk where he actually did re- research. I've actually been, <laughs> Gabe, if you're listening to this, I don't think he listens to our podcast. I've been pinging you an email. I want to follow up on what you <laughs> talked about. Um, because he actually did that analysis of the Amazon thing. And I wish I had his slides because there was stuff on his slides and I wasn't there when he talked and I don't have a copy of his slides. But, uh, but that was a great example of somebody who, I mean, he's a law firm lawyer, but he was doing a kind yeah. of an academic legal talk of I researched these agreements 
of various different types of the cloud providers, and there are serious problems for GPL in them. He had clear examples. Is that the was, next one that we're doing? No, we did that. Oh, back we did a that one already. Oh, ago, yeah. sorry. Anyway, I forget the episode we... number. Okay. But it was way back. We did Gabe's talk about about is is you know go, code goes in and doesn't come out the thing about the oh, cloud. Oh right, yeah. And and it was a really good kind of academically focused legal talk because it was raising a clear issue that really still concerns me to this day. And I actually been bugging Gabe in email again to get. Um, his slides and stuff, because I actually want to use that as part of the stuff I'm going to talk about, about copyleft in the cloud again, because uh, I'm working on a talk about that. So it's not that I'm against these people who are doing academically focused stuff. It's just, it, 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 you're just not there. And, and I, I'll say again that if, if this was a case where her student did some work, she got stuck, like I stuck uh, my old professor <laughs> with presenting it. Um, you know, I, I know, I know how that goes, right? She was not, she was just the advisor. She wasn't necessarily doing the work. So she has to go and present something that, that she's yeah, not Yeah, it's also just a matter of. of style and, you know, engaging people in a way that you hope that they will want to continue to well, be present in our field. And I think the reason that I mean, she's I, already, she's very, I mean, she's established. I'm not worried that she's going to change yeah, her yeah. field. I mean, she's, she's an experienced academic. So. Yeah, but to, I think the problem is that that it's. I mean, I don't want people like that because the problem I have is that people like that are around the community, raising this fud. I mean, she's basically feeding the fud. That's what she's doing because she's she's giving no real evidence and saying, oh, the uh, the GPL doesn't work uh, work internationally, right? And and some other some time in the future, I'm going to get handed. I've been handed these papers saying, oh, this this is the way it works, right? And this is why. Yeah, but this academic work is so dangerous. She will engage with you quite so readily now that you've interrupted her talk and asked her these. I raised my hand. I think you raised your hand and started speaking at the same time. Nope, I raised my hand. She called on me. Oh, okay. All right. If she hadn't called on me, I would not have. It would be really tough to not call on you, though, in a small room with. She said she would take questions in her interweaved. Okay. All right. I, all what right, what, what right. am I supposed to do? I raised my hand. She said to take questions during the talk. I raised my hand. She called on me. You're not wrong, Walter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, you wanted to give me a hard time about that. So I now did. you've done, you got to do it twice. And this Fantastic. time, the recording, we have a backup recording. So this time, the recording <laughs> won't be lost like it was last time. And therefore, we'll finally clear all these uh, all these old FOSDEM talks, which uh, which I, I feel a certain obligation to do that because we did record these talks and okay. people should hear them. All righty. Praise and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Freeze and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Freeze and Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Freeze and Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. play to actually start recording. I can't remember that. <sighs> I gotta write this down.